From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest David Bentley Hart invites us to reconsider what we know about eternal damnation or salvation. He invites us to look at the Christian tradition with fresh eyes and with renewed attention to the language of Scripture. We're going to be discussing his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with David Bentley Hart. He's an Eastern Orthodox scholar of religion and a philosopher, writer, and cultural commentator. Most recently, he's been at the Notre Dame Institute of Advanced Study. He's the author of many books, including The Experience of God and, recently, The New Testament. We're talking about his most recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. And I should add that Professor Hart is recovering from a cold, and so his voice at certain points may be a little raspy, but we're happy that he's here and happy that he is recovering. David Bentley Hart, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot to talk about here in this book, because basically what you're intending to do, in my understanding, is give your final word about these ideas about ultimate destiny of humanity, at least in terms of the kind of debates that you've been having for the past few years. So you came up with this book, but then you've also been writing a couple of op-eds around the book. We'll talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding the book and the op-eds, but for the sake of my listeners, let's start out, first of all, to look at the basic argument of the book. So you are looking at two ideas. First of all, the idea that is prevalent in current Christianity that we could be possibly eternally damned, eternally separated from God. That's sort of the first piece. The second piece is that we might somehow choose using our rational faculties to turn away from God's goodness and allow ourselves to be eternally damned. And you want to interrogate deeply both of those questions. First of all, have I understood at least that part of your argument? Yes, yes. I, I would say that's a good way of dividing the topics, because, of course, though it's a continuous argument, it has both positive and negative moments in it. So I would say those are that, that would be one way of, of outlining the large concerns, yeah. Well, and so to get into this, let's maybe talk about why it is that contemporary Christianity has an attachment to these ideas, to the notion, first of all, that we might somehow be able to be eternally damned and that we might somehow, in our process of living out a world where revelation comes to us gradually and not always with clarity, that we might somehow choose to turn away from salvation and goodness. Where did those ideas begin? Where did they come from? Well, obviously, there, uh, the idea of uh, final damnation 
goes back to the earliest centuries of the Church. Most people think that it's an explicit teaching of the New Testament. It actually it isn't. The New Testament gives a lot of uh, mixed images and, and actually contains far more statements that look universalist, that is, look like statements of universal salvation, than the reverse. But nonetheless, that's been the majority tradition. Uh, unchallenged for many centuries uh, after the, I'd say, the fifth or fourth century. So, to a degree, it's simply, you know, that's the story we've been told. There are those who are deeply emotionally attached to the idea, but I would say for the better part of believers, for the better part of the Christian world, it's simply a matter of, how should I put it, not unthinking but casual acceptance of a, a doctrine that they haven't ever really thought their way through to the end. As for the, the notion that we could freely choose so to cut ourselves off from God, I think that has become the most popular defense of the notion of eternal damnation uh, in the last century and a half, because the more and more one seriously interrogates the moral intelligibility of all the other all the other justifications of the notion, such as just sheer divine sovereignty, predestinate will, uh, somehow we merit it. You know, the, the more one looks at it, the more intolerably incoherent the picture becomes. And so the last the last attempt at salvage an intelligible picture of eternal damnation is to say that God is not so much damning us as choose to separate ourselves from God. And that's, you know, that sounds at first rather plausible because to a limited but obvious degree, it's a psychological truth that we do that in this life. We cut off uh, not only God, but, but our neighbors, not those who, you know, the, the deficiencies of our love are obvious. And it seems that it might be possible willfully to reject the love of God. But again, when you look at that closely, what very closely, and consider logically what's entailed in such a proposition, that turns out to be the, the poorest argument of all. Well, if I may quote you, there, there's a portion early on in the book where you summarize and you say, as it happens, I do believe that the only hell that could possibly exist is the one of which these Christian contemplatives speak, the hatred within each of us that turns the love of others, of God and of neighbor, into torment. It's entirely a state that we impose upon ourselves, and the only Christian narrative of salvation that to me seems coherent is the one that the earliest church derived so directly from Scripture, a relentless tale of rescue conducted by a God who requires no tribute to win his forgiveness or love. I think that that's, in a nutshell, what we're going to be talking about for the next hour. And so for my listeners who are who are committed to a different reading of the scriptures or to a different idea of our eternal uh, fate, you may want to turn the show off now because we're going to be digging into these ideas as we go. But for those that are just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the theologian David Bentley Hart about his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. So, Let's get some terms out of the way, because we're going to be using some technical language, and I want to make sure that listeners are following us. And so, for example, we might want to define briefly the ideas that are encompassed by the words atonement 
and soteriology. So first of all, when we're talking about atonement, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, I mean, literally, the word, an English word, that literally means at one event. And it, uh, it, what it simply means is a restoration of unity or union between creatures and God, a restoration accomplished by the work of Christ, Christian thought. But when you get into the details, what uh, how that atonement uh, is accomplished has uh, been thought through very differently at different periods of the Church and in different regions of the Christian world. And those different regions and those different areas of thought, I think, are part of what you're trying to deal with in the book. You mentioned your own history of kind of hearing priests preach homilies, and you, you talk about having been raised, and please correct me if I'm if I'm getting any of this incorrect, but uh, that you were raised in sort of a high church Episcopal tradition, and you recall hearing one particular sermon, which was, I think, intended to kind of scare you as a youngster into good behavior, and instead you kind of treated it as almost like a ghost story, almost like a, a tale of fantasy. And that has sort of been, if I'm not mistaken, your approach to these kinds of interpretations of Scripture and interpretations of eternal damnation and certain atonement models that would require that somehow we imagine God to be vengeful or wrathful. Do I have that correct? Now, in defense of that poor uh, Episcopal priest, though, I should tell you that in the high church, the priest is never trying to scare you. The most uh, the most uh, uh, high priest will ever try to do is persuade you. He was telling the story mostly because he thought there was something beautiful in the tale of the mercy of the human protagonist or the living desert father protagonist in the tale, uh, he simply didn't notice that that if you actually followed the story very closely, that the villain in the tale was God. And so let's also now turn to this idea of soteriology. It's another term that maybe someone in the listening audience may have heard or has maybe never heard at all, but it has some technical theological meaning. When we're talking about soteriology, what is that? Well, soter is the Greek word for, for Savior, and it simply means understandings, again, of how the atonement is accomplished in the work of Christ, in what way we are saved. Uh, and again, as I say, at different times and in different places, radically different theories of soteriology have prevailed. Many Christians adhere to ideas about what the teachings of the New Testament are regarding the work of Christ that would have been absolutely alien to the actual thinking of the authors, in in large part because they're separated from the original language and cultural context of the language of the New Testament, in large part because they've been raised in traditions that have wandered far from the sources inadvertently. And when you mention wandering far from the sources, I think that this is a good point to note to listeners that your publication prior to this particular book, That All Shall Be Saved, was in fact going back to the sources of the New Testament and doing a translation of the New Testament. What was that process like for you, going back and going through the language and trying to think about the culture that surrounded the texts of the New Testament? Well, it was a curious experience, because in part, I I wasn't surprised 
objectively by what I discovered. In that, I mean, I, I've been studying these things for years, and I've, I've been reading Greek since I was a boy, and I, I'm very familiar with the text. But the funny thing is that when you're obliged to actually to translate it, 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 things you thought you knew could strike you at a far deeper level than you'd anticipated. What I discovered in, in any number of, you know, on any number of topics was, once again, what I had to confront was just how very alien the world of the New Testament would be to many modern Christians, and how elusive and strange the language and concepts in which it's constructed really would be, and how how really oversimplified and often a deceptive concept or, or an understanding we have in these texts due to histories of translation that were guided by doctrinal or theological traditions rather than a, an absolutely scrupulous attention to the words on the page. Well, I'm interested in pursuing that idea a little bit, and just to ask you a follow-on question, there was a 20th century New Testament scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, and he's famous or perhaps infamous for the idea, which is in some way in concert with what you just said, that trying to get back to that alien world of the Bible may be a non-starter for us. And his great task was demythologization, to try and take away, in some sense, the miraculous and leave behind instead something else. You're not talking about that when you're referencing that alien world. You still, if I'm understanding you, want to maintain some kind of miraculous substance here. First of all, am I correct in making that distinction? Yeah, I, I, the Boltmanian project, again, is, is typical of a certain German intellectual project of the mid-20th century that assumed that the, the picture of reality bequeathed us by, by the Enlightenment and by, let's say, if not absolute materialism, nonetheless, a kind of empirical uh, refusal to... to Accept the possibility of things beyond the, the, the evidence of senses, and you know, again, to me, that is one of superstition as any other. I, I find materialism a, a, a logically incoherent philosophy, so I feel no need to no need to attenuate the content of faith in order to match the prejudices of the present moment. Nonetheless, that said, the New Testament also does take shape in a cosmological picture and the, the, that uh, is not the one we have now. And that in certain aspects, we can't think our way back into. And so when we, you know, and, and I certainly don't advocate a return to the sort of uh, Ptolemaic universe that the ancients, that medieval persons read, read the scriptures in or through. But that said, the real problem is that a lot of the language specific to the time and place, what the terms would have meant for the authors of the book, are now unintelligible to us because we don't inhabit that world. And even if we try imaginatively to return to it, we, we lack the ability spontaneously to understand it. 
So to me, a great deal of the history of Christian thought has been like a game of telephone. I mean, not not to make it too true, but what started as the message of the Apostle Paul, by the time you get to, say, the 16th century, the reformers, both Catholic and Protestant, has become something so utterly unlike what he was actually talking about that it's, you know, it takes actually uh, something of a stretch of faith even to say that this is a message. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is David Bentley Hart. We're talking about his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is David Bentley Hart, and we're discussing his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Well, in your book, That All Shall Be Saved, there's a quotation that I want to lift out and dig into. You, you write, the great majority of defenders of the idea of a real hell of eternal torment, and you say, for brevity's sake, let's call them the infernalists, that they never really get around to addressing properly the question of whether we can make moral sense of God's acts in the great cosmic drama of creation, redemption, and damnation. Now, I want to make sure that I'm tracking what you're saying here. Is what you're saying in a quotation like that, that these infernalists, those who want to defend the idea of God consigning us to an eternal hell, that it's kind of a black box? They haven't opened up the idea of what kind of God could be doing that to us. It, first of all, is is that the, the kind of claim that you're making, that, that they're arguing from a sort of ignorance or a sort of belief in their belief rather than actually having something positive to say about God's moral character? Right. Well, no, I mean, uh, uh, the latter, a belief in their belief, that is that many of them, in my experience, think they believe a great deal that when you press them or when the circumstances of their life make them confront the implications of what they think they believe, it turns out they never really believed that to begin with. But, you know, I've had uh, a hard and fast Thomist friend, and I should point out quickly that the term Thomist refers to a specific school within the study of Thomas Aquinas. I don't mean everyone who studies Thomas. But Thomists, that is the, the classical manualist Thomist tradition that starts in the 16th century. Well, I had one, you know, no one who's the, you know, the, the truest true believer in that, in that system, including the, for him, undeniable claim that anyone who commits suicide having committed a mortal sin uh, without having given the immortal son the chance to repent, simply cannot avoid eternal damnation. And yet when, you know, sad to say, one of his own children committed suicide, he realized that he knew, without even having to think about it, that this doctrine was obscene, because he had seen in reality, what suicide is, that it's the brokenness, the uh, confusion, the sadness. 
and he'd understood, he realized that he'd never really believed it. He had never really believed in so cruel a calculus. And again and again, I found that uh, people who, when you press them on the logic of hell, they're always trying to make it more and more acceptable, mitigating the nature of the torment, mitigating the conditions of our damnation, ultimately claiming that it's our free decision and saying maybe it's not, uh, you know, maybe the opportunity is always open, pressing it as far as they can towards greater moral intelligibility until... For some of them, the light comes on and they realize they're doing that because the actual belief itself is morally incoherent. Well, first of all, I simply want to express to your friend's loss my deepest sympathies. But I I also think that you're pointing at an observation that you make throughout the book, and that is it's not simply an intellectual assent that we're talking about here, but if we look at the actions— the, the fruits, if you will, of those who claim to believe a certain infernalist view of eternity. They don't act yeah. like they believe it. They, they speak it, but they don't, they don't walk the walk. And talk to me about that observation that you keep making. Why is that significant that they don't seem to act in the way that they seem to believe? Because it's impossible. I mean, look at the way we have impoverished the Christian story down the centuries. I mean, let me just go to just give me a, a little bit of rope here. Uh, one of the claims of the book is that many of the pictures we have of the teachings of the New Testament, especially in the West, I'm not a Western Christian uh, anymore. I am, but I mean, I'm confessionally Eastern Orthodox, and, and that was a conscious rejection of certain aspects of the Western tradition. But many, many, many Christians have a picture of God who is a God who saves by way of substitutionary, punitive sacrifice of, of an innocent victim to appease his wrath. Even those who don't have to accrue the notion of atonement have something closer to the New Testament picture, nonetheless. Many of them, you know, do see the story coming down to a kind of a lottery of, you know, the winners and losers, who gets into a gated community and who gets left out. When you look at the actual language of Paul, which is dizzying in its, at times, uncertainty, I mean, they're, they're, nonetheless, the story he's telling is relentlessly the same. It is... God descending into the prison house of death and estrangement, destroying everything that separates us from God, and opening a path of union that will ultimately flower in the age to come. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, God being all in all. It's a glorious picture of, of a lost people being rescued by the absolutely relentless love of, of God even willing to take on the conditions of strength and death of himself. But the picture many of us now hold to has become, as I say, this rather sterile notion of transaction with God to appease his wrath. But even when you, you get away from it, no one who really, really tried to live according to the picture, the incoherent picture that they've been asked to accept, which, to put it very simply, is that an omnipotent, omniscient God of justice, mercy, and goodness could
could either impose or tolerate the imposition of the eternal torment of his creatures. It is a self-evident contradiction. It is a nonsense claim. There is no possible world in which that can be made coherent. And all of the specious and spurious reasons used to justify it fails when it's subjected to serious analytic critique. So no one could live by it. No one could live by so vast and meaningless a contradiction because it reduces all of existence to moral nonsense. It means there's no difference between good and evil, between justice and injustice, between love and malice. So what we do is we live in the light that we perceive that there's a loving God. We try to reconcile the ridiculous attachment of the notion of a hell of eternal torment as a kind of, by telling ourselves in some way that it's just or conserved goodness, but mostly we don't believe it, and except at a very superficial conscious level, we accept it and profess it. But there's no way we can live by it, because if we really believed it, we would have no children. We wouldn't risk horrid thing for, for, for someone we love. We would not be able to live our lives without being frantic for the well-being of every single soul around us. Without, you know, it, it, it's such an insane view of reality that if anyone were literally convinced by it rather than simply as a state, psychologically reconciled to thinking that they believe in, their life would become chaos. So I want to press into an image that you gave us from the Pauline letters, and that is this notion of God kind of invading the world in the person of Jesus Christ to save us, to almost yank us out of the the bondage to the flesh, the bondage to sin that we're in. When I read that portion of your book, That All Shall Be Saved, it reminded me of, first of all, J. Louis Martin's Galatians commentary from about 20 years ago, but it also sounded to me like a book from the middle of the last century called Christus Victor by Gustav Alain. Yeah, sure. And and so I'm 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 wondering is this a kind of Christus Victor atonement model or would you classify this in a different way would you want to would you want to separate yourself from that articulation of the of the atonement tradition? Oh no no uh, Gustav Alain is a little bit oversimplistic in some of the details but on uh, general what he's saying is right the earliest patristic narrative but also the the one that's there in the New Testament is about the overcoming of the powers and principalities. And these are spiritual for, for Paul. These are angelic powers. You know, you're, you're not, <laughs> it always shocks Christians when I say this, but it's true. Paul doesn't actually say anything good about angels. Uh, he's always thinking of them as sort of the, the incompetent governors of the nations who, uh, who, who uh, are guarding the path back to God. And... Um, and he thinks of it in both a spiritual and physical sense. Again, we, we, we have a hard time doing that because we don't really think of the heavens as actually physically separating us from, from the presence of God so that he literally, almost in a, in a spatial sense, has to send. But to that degree, Boltmann might be you know, perfectly sound. We, can, but we can't quite think of it in that way. But... What Alain got right was that the earliest atonement theology had nothing to do with appeasing God's wrath. In fact, this is, as I say, the problem of translation, right? When you pick up 
uh, New Testament in English frequently, and you read the word ransom. It's not in all of them, but it's there for for the Greek words litron, anti-litron. Well, for, you know, in Western tradition, for many, many parts of the Christian world, that's come to be a ransom paid to the Father by the Son on the cross, right? But of course, it doesn't have that meaning in Paul's Greek, and it certainly is not how it was read by the early church fathers. In, in Greek, it's, it's simply, he's using a metaphor from civil law, not from criminal law, about the price that would be paid to free slaves. It's manumission fee. In fact, that's how I translate it in the New Testament. And it's part of his larger a story again. He's using a variety of metaphors, but basically, it's a story of liberation. He says, "You know, God enters our reality in the Son, in order to set the captives free." And it's also worth pointing out that that Paul not only proclaims that all of creation, you know, above the the, the earth, on earth, below it, will gladly praise, not just confess, but gladly praise and that God will be all in all, he uh, nowhere, absolutely nowhere, in his theology suggests that there's such a thing as a hell of eternal torment. That's, the, that's uh, you know, God's way of paying us off if we don't get in line. Rather, the story for him is that everything, spiritual agencies, death, sin, our own estrangement from God, everything that he says happened in Adam, I don't even know if he means that allegorically or literally, because he reads the Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew Scriptures so allegorically most of the time. Everything that happened in Adam is holy versus Christ. So you have you know, universalist claims like Romans 5.18, that, that all who died in Adam were made alive in Christ. Sorry, that were rather 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, says it that way, too. And, you know, we have to recover that vision for the understand Paul. So, looking at this then, we could take this in two ways, and I'm going to ask sort of a question about a chapter that you do on the nature of God, and then a chapter that you do on the nature of the human person. You talk, first of all, about the fact that God being eternal, God being beyond time, we shouldn't think about God being constrained by the kind of categories of moral and ethical choice that we as limited beings are constrained to. So does it make sense? I want to put that on the table in light of a statement you made earlier that it's it's incomprehensible to think of the nature of a God that would create us basically to be damned, that that was sort of, I'm going to paraphrase, and, and if I've misquoted you, please correct me, but a moral non-starter in, in some way. And so is the argument that God's ways are not our ways a compelling argument? Is is the argument for mystery in God's morality sufficient to carry this notion of eternal damnation? And if not, why not? In fact, there could scarcely be a poorer argument, because if, you, if it becomes that to say that God's ways are not our ways to invoke divine mystery is simply to say that, that the truths we can speak about God are supposedly revealed by the are incomprehensibly greater in him, not that they're antithetical in him to what they are in us. That, uh, one of the themes that subtends the entire argument of the book, the question of the possibility of analogy. I mean, the theological languages have an intelligible content. There has to be some 
analogical continuity between the language we use both in regard to creatures and in regard to God. I mean, Christ himself insists on that. He tells his disciples to understand God's universal fatherhood by comparison to their own experience of paternal love, right? That doesn't deny the, the apophatic limits that prevent our words and concepts concepts from comprehending God, but the logic of apophaticism or the logic of the divine mystery still requires that our words retain some kind of consistency of meaning, because in passing from creaturely realm to the divine, because it's a note, if our theological claims apply to these words in such a way that their creaturely and divine meanings become antithetical to one another, then all of our predicates become equivocal and meaningless. I mean, you know, with that happen, you, you know, what would be inaugurated is what I call a contagion of animosity, a red that would render all Christian language both semantically and syntactically vacuous, and it would also be that God never actually revealed himself at all in Christ. It was all a shadow play. It, it, it would just destroy the whole foundation of Christianity. But it's also... It's based on this sort of childish, mythic picture of God. It's like just a big being out there who does whatever he likes, sometimes good, sometimes bad. I mean, obviously, the transcendent God, fullness of all being, is goodness itself. I mean, you know, and if he's not, then we should look for the true God, because this is obviously some limited, finite, psychological God being who is inferior to the source of his own being. When you realize the danger of that animosity, then you try to, to map words like justice, mercy, and love and goodness onto the story as we tell it. Again and again, you'll find that we have to introduce such hard and fast partitions into our understandings of that word that they become meaningless. We are, we're, and then our faith, in fact, faith becomes meaningless. It's just brute ascent to a who knows what. If that were true, why would you even believe the promises of God? Why would you? He might just, as a joke, send us all to hell, you know, if you were that sort of thing. But uh, that's all just, I mean, that's all the prelude to the larger argument. The first meditation of those you're Listeners who may not know, after the introductory arguments, there are four meditations. The first one is, I'll admit, a somewhat somewhat philosophically complicated argument. I've written it in such a way that I think that that, that any intelligent reader can follow if he or she wants. But basically, it's an argument that I think is logically, well, frankly, logically obvious that all the old distinctions that used to be made trying to reconcile ourselves to, to these notions of divine agency ultimately end up just saying that actually God's malevolent benevolence and malevolence are the same, that he has no moral nature at all. You know, and it's just, it, 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 at that point, you're just embracing absurdity. Well, and so let let me then follow on and ask about a, another portion of your meditations and the the sort of grand the grand uh, term that you put over this is a, an Eastern Orthodox term apocatastasis, and we we don't necessarily have to dig into that term, but my understanding is that that term is basically talking about God's will to perfect the cosmos. Yeah, it literally means restoration. It's, it's the notion 
that what, say, First Corinthians 15 is talking about is a restoration of all creation, including every creature. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with David Bentley Hart about his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with David Bentley Hart about his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Well, so then let me ask a follow-on question about another one of your meditations, and that has to do with the nature of the human person. And throughout your book, That All Shall Be Saved, you are parrying some of the arguments of Orthodox Calvinists and in, I'm, I'm in danger of making a caricature here, but for the purposes of brevity, I'm going to make it. So one might say that an Orthodox Calvinist would say that the fundamental nature of the human person is their fallibility, their ability to become corrupted, their total depravity. And it seems like you are wanting to make an opposite argument, that you want to not focus on the the possibility of a human person becoming depraved in a cosmic and ultimate sense, but rather the possibility of a human person growing towards and responding to divine love in this same idea of apocatastasis, of, of redemption. Uh, first of all, do I have that distinction correct? Well, first of all, the idea of total depravity is idiotic. It, it's meaningless, the concept. To be totally depraved, a, a, a person would have to have no concept of the good at all. And in that regard, would not be free in any sense. What the story that most Christians, I mean, think about, again, here we have to be specific, Western Christian tradition says not only that we're born fallible, but that we're born guilty. That's a nonsense statement. You cannot be guilty for something you haven't done. If God is, if, if God were so wicked as to hold us guilty for something we ourselves had not been had not done he again would not be the good God or the good as such. Quite often if we're talking about freedom in the modern world, we just make the assumption that what we mean by freedom is the libertarian power to do anything whatsoever without rationale. And that and and that quite often we use this as a way of justifying the notion of, of an eternal hell, at least in the world. We say the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Now, the 
line from C.S. Lewis. And, and of course, a fetching image, except it's totally unbiblical because uh, you know, there's no reason to think that once the gates of hell are shattered, the key has been handed to anyone. But what makes a choice free? Principally, is that it has a telos. That is, to act freely, one has to conceive a purpose or an object and then elect either to pursue it or not to pursue it. But there has to be a basic proposiveness, right? what we call a final causality, in the will's operation. Otherwise, the will would just be a brute event. It would just be something that happens, not because we propose, P-U-R, to do something, but because it happens, almost like a, an embolism would happen to us. It would be just determined by its physical antecedents, like or a neural impulse. To be really free, one has to be able to choose this rather than that, according to a real sense of which better satisfies one's natural longing for, say, happiness or goodness or truth or beauty. And what allows one to choose between different possible objects of volition is an intellectual orientation towards some index of ends that are desirable in and of themselves. This is just obvious. You think of what you do when you choose to do something. For there to be real empirical freedom, for you to be able to choose something, not just be the victim of physical circumstance, there has to be a prior transcendental determinism. That is a prior openness, a desire in you for the that your nature craves, the desirable in itself. Now, for Christians, we say all of these are names of God: the good, the true, the beautiful. But to be to be fulfilled as human beings, we have to be united to God. There has to be a why in a free choice. I mean, every time you eat a salad at lunch rather than a, a plate of broken glass, you prove this to yourself. Or, you know, if you, you love a work of art, it's because you have a more original, a deeper longing for beauty that this work of art partially satisfies. There's some ultimate horizon of desire that gives you a context for evaluation and judgment and choice. So what's the point of all this? My argument in the book is not that we can't reject God, it's that we can't do it with both perfect knowledge and perfect freedom. And so the free will defense of an eternal hell rests on a logical fiction. Sheer choice in and of itself is not freedom. The more irrational a choice, the less free it is. Right? And the more one knows, the more rational one's choice, and therefore the freer it becomes. In a sense, a lunatic has a far larger range of real options than the same person does, because he or she has less freedom. I mean, a lunatic might run into a burning building on impulse to see what it feels like to die in flames. A sane man, because he has a, he can form a rational judgment of what can and cannot satisfy his nature, lacks that so expansive a liberty. So to say that 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 creatures that are truly in possession of knowledge of who God is, but their own nature is to the degree that they are actually able to make a really free choice rather than one that's imposed on by circumstances, we then are capable then of choosing not the fulfillment of their nature, God, but the unrelenting eternal torment is, is a nonsensical claim. We say it to make ourselves feel better. If you think about it, what you're saying is that actually... The free will defense would come down to say there are a certain number of souls who are 
born in a state of misery, delusion, pain, and ignorance, and God chooses to leave them in that state forever so that they make the insane choice of, of, of eternal torment, and that we're called that freedom because that sounds good. And so earlier you said that the idea that we are born into guilt is irrational. What I'm hearing in what you're saying is that we may be born into constraint and limitation, and that one of the things that your careful, your careful reading of the New Testament has shown you is that God's desire, if I'm hearing you correctly, is to invade that limitation and constraint and to liberate us so that we might actually choose God as the good, and we might actually have our notion of rational options for the good expanded. Am, am I hearing that correctly in what you're saying? Yeah, the whole that we're actually set free to become free. The only freedom for a rational man, the only true freedom, is union with God. And, you know, I mean, I, to me, this, you know, look, can I give you one more, just to give you an example? Absolutely. Uh, do you know the, the classic, the Frank R. Stockton story, The Lady or the Tiger? I, I know it, but it's been many years, so remind me what it says. Well, it's, you know, a handsome young courtier in the, in the court of a semi-barbaric king has a romance with the king's daughter above his station, so the king sentences him to the arena. The way the arena works in this kingdom is he's presented with two doors. Behind one, there's a famished tiger that will devour him. Behind the other, a beautiful maiden will become his wife. And those are the only choices. Now, the latter may not work out for you because you may already be married or you'd love someone else. So, and so the story there is is about the princess who's found out which door is which and signals to her lover in the arena. And what you're left hanging with is which did she tell him? Did she succumb to her jealousy, not wanting to see him married to the maiden and feed him to the tiger, or did she succumb to her love? You know. So let's just make it simple. Let's just say, here's the choice. Put the, forget about the princess. The young courtier with no one to guide him has a choice between a door behind which that tiger is crouching and another behind which the girl in his dreams is waiting to say the princess or something, right? Now, which door should he want to open if he's sane? He should want to open the—yeah, he should want to open the one with the woman behind it. And if he didn't, we wouldn't say, oh, well, that's his free choice. We would say he's demented and therefore not making a free, rational choice, right? Uh, now, what that makes him freer, that he knows which door is which or that he doesn't? I would assume knowing which door is which makes him more free. Right, because then he can actually choose not just, you know, he's not forced to make a decision based on despair that that ultimately is up to chance. He's actually been given what he needs in order to know what to choose in order freely to find the end he seeks. So the more he, he knows, the freer he comes, but then also the more inevitable the choice he may, he'll make becomes. So the, the freer he is, the less there is to choose. In fact, what follows isn't really a choice at all, is it? It's a purely free movement of thought of will towards a rationally desired object. He's been liberated from the need to choose arbitrarily and has thus been determined towards an inevitable terminus by the reality of his own freedom. If we really believe that God is the good, if we really believe we are creatures created with a capacity 
for the good itself, who is God, that, that such union is possible. If we really believe there are such things as truth and goodness and beauty, then we cannot believe that this libertarian picture of, of freedom, this just sheer spontaneity, is actually it has anything to do with free will. That's such a clear indication, uh, such a clear model of what we're talking about. So as soon as as soon as you have the information to actually make the choice, it no longer becomes a choice because only an insane person would choose the tiger. All right. Freely, sanely, deliberatively, let's forget about tigers and talk about hell, to elect misery forever rather than bliss in one's true end is a form of madness, and to call that madness freedom in order to soothe our consciences and continue to reconcile ourselves to a picture of reality that's morally absurd is just to talk nonsense. That brings us then to the question, as our conversation is, is nearing its conclusion, because we have ample data that a whole bunch of Christians in America, and perhaps in the world, are choosing that kind of narrative. And so part of what I want to ask you is, why do we love hell so much? Why do we love the idea of hell so much? What do we possibly gain, Christians, by telling ourselves this narrative that, as you have patiently explained, is not only not biblical, but it's not logical? I presume the goodwill of most Believers. That is, I think that most of them just think this is the story they've got, this is what the Bible says, this is dogma. And in some cases it is dogma. Luckily, being Eastern Orthodox, it's always a matter of contention, because once you get past the seven ecumenical councils, none of which address the issue, really, you know, there isn't, there isn't any more actual dogma. You know, we just yell at each other. But there are dogmas, say, that are, that are find in the Catholic tradition that are more difficult to deal with. But, on the whole, I'm going to assume that most people just accept it as a given. And I don't think they love it, because as I said, I think most of them don't really believe it at any but the most superficial of levels. They'll confess it, they'll profess it, they'll tell themselves they think it's true. They, they really don't. There are others who honestly think for themselves and for others, they need this to keep themselves on the straight and narrow. I mean, or whether they think that that's how it functions for them. Again, I presume their goodwill. I have, however, I mean, there are those, I have met them, I have talked to them, they really exist, who love the idea for a very different reason. And that's because they want to be the winners. You know, they see life as, as uh, either a lottery or a kind of... Uh, you know, game of preferment, and I had I talked to two young, and I hope as they age they'll think through these things more carefully. But two young converts to Catholicism from a very fundamentalist evangelical background. A few years ago, when I was uh, teaching at, at uh, St. Louis University, I was a visiting chair for the year, and it was clear that they felt that they had. You know, one of them said to me at one point when talking about famous universalist Gregory of Nyssa, or maybe we were talking about origin, I don't remember which, uh, said, well, then what's the point of being Catholic? And as the conversation unfolded, it became clear that for both of them, they felt they had found, you know, the correct uh, form of life, and they had gotten it right, and they'd worked hard. And, and the image I'm always tempted to use is people from, like, someone from my blue collar background works his way up into the the uh, upper echelons of his business, and he finds himself, and, you know, he lives in the 
fellowship program for the underprivileged, and he thinks, well, they didn't do anything to deserve this. It's like those guys at the who, get, who only worked for an hour at the end of the day and get paid the same as I do. And I have to say that I have met many who do really cherish the idea of hell because they want to be the winners, and to be winners, they feel they need there to be there have to be losers, and there have to be a lot of losers for for whatever it is that makes being a winner special, to be very special indeed. Happily, I think that's a small minority, but I have met them. They are there, and I think that's a sign that the story that Christians, many Christians have been told to believe, can not only point towards, but can actually cultivate a kind of moral stupidity in us. Well, and it, it reminds me in some ways, and we've been talking about the scriptural texts, it reminds me of Paul talking to the church in Galatia, where he says, I gave you very plainly the gospel. Christ did it. You don't have to do anything. And now you're coming along and saying, no, I have to add something to this in order to make this work right. It's almost like we, we can't believe how good the promise is that we have in the cross. And it's interesting to me that we're we're so determined to try and make it more complicated than it is. So maybe my last question to you is, do you think that you've done something novel here, or have you simply cleared away the dross and the rubbish, and you've brought back something that is very simple and true about what the New Testament teaches? Well, before I, I answer that, let me... Um say that, just so that your listeners know, if they want to know why, what my claims about the New Testament, because most of them will still probably think the New Testament is on the infernalist side of the scales here, uh, that in, in this book and in my critical notes in the New Testament translation, I, I indicate why I, I would argue this isn't so. Now, the question you're asking, I have actually tried to provoke people by telling them book is irrefutable. And what I'm wanting, I'm trying to get them to ask me what I mean by that, because, you know, it sounds like a ridiculously pompous claim. In point of fact, what I mean is that I think that all I've really accomplished in the book, I mean, I I, I will admit, I, I mean, I think it's it's very well argued, and I think I use novel arguments, you know, philosophy drawn from, say, game theory and other things. But ultimately, I'm using these fairly uh, recherche methods of argument ultimately to, to point out something that I think is very obvious. What's irrefutable is something I think we all already know, that there's a problem with the story we've been telling. It does not make sense where, where you know, to say, speak of the God of it, that a good justice, wisdom, and power, and also the story we had to say that he imposes or permits us to impose on ourselves a state of eternal torment, eternal ignorance, eternal madness. When you really think about it, you realize that you've been obliged to make your language meaningless. That if you really take these two things as hard and true parts of the language of Christian affirmation, then that language becomes meaningless. And so, yeah, I think I've done something novel in that I think there's some clever arguments, but ultimately, I think all I've done is point to something that most of us already know, but we feel we're not allowed to acknowledge because we've been deceived. 
Well, David Bentley Hart, your book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation, it was a book that I think I really needed to read because I have been struggling with some of these questions at the core of my own faith, and I found this to be almost like a air coming through an open window for me. It's a book that I plan to go back and read again and probably again, and I'm thankful that you took the time to make this statement, and I'm thankful especially that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Well, uh, I'm very grateful to have been invited to come on. And uh, forgive the scratchy voice, but uh, (laughs) otherwise, uh, thanks so much for having me. We've been speaking today with David Bentley Hart. He's an Eastern Orthodox scholar of religion and a philosopher, writer, and cultural commentator. He's most recently been on faculty at the Notre Dame Institute of Advanced Study. We've been talking about his recent book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.